Yeah.
turn in the book of Mark to chapter 15. That's where we're going to pick up. Last week we talked about what Jesus accomplished on the cross. What did he mean by saying it is finished? What has actually been done? Today we are going to read Mark's account. We've looked at Luke's account. We've looked at John's account. We've tried to harmonize some of those various different accounts. But today we're going to look at Mark's account of Jesus actually on the tree. We will look at the resurrection and results of the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection to our theology all next week. But today we're just going to concentrate on the details that Mark gives us about Jesus actually on the cross. So we're going to start at chapter 15, verse 22. Verse 22 says, And they brought him, they brought Jesus to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. If you've ever been over to Jerusalem, if you've seen the place that they think that is, sometimes in art it is depicted as a skull-like face, but actually the word means like a skull cap. It's just a stony mound that looks like the top of a skull, and that's why it's got that name, the place of the skull. And he was carrying not a full cross, he was carrying a beam. The actual word is staros in the Greek language, and it usually refers to a beam or a cross beam. Chances are, on the place of the skull, the Romans left upright posts, and then people would carry the cross beam on their shoulders. And then once they were nailed to those cross beams, the cross beams would be hoisted up onto the already upright pillars that were standing there. Because remember, the Romans at this point had pretty much perfected the art of crucifixion. And so these posts that were up on the place of the skull were used repeatedly. They had it down to a methodology where they could crucify people pretty readily. It was a well-known form of death and public humiliation. So he carries that crossbeam, which is probably somewhere between 80 and 100 pounds. You can see why he would be tired carrying it and why eventually they would have to get uh, Simon of Cyrene to carry his crossbeam up there because after the beatings, the floggings, the crown of thorns, being awake all night, he just wasn't physically able to carry it anymore. And so a person was conscripted into service to carry it for him. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which is translated the place of the skull. Someone look up Proverbs 31 verses 6 and 7. Because of what is written in the Proverbs, there was a custom among the Jewish women there in Jerusalem. Because there were people being crucified with fair regularity outside the gates of Jerusalem, the women there created a mixture of myrrh, and the whole idea was to create an anesthetic that they would take to people who were going through that kind of torture and death just to make it a little more bearable. As Jesus is on his way to the cross, 
apparently the women try to give him some of it now later you're going to hear him say I thirst as you can imagine he would be very thirsty so apparently he waits for a moment sees what that drink is and when he realizes it's an anesthetic he refuses to take it he's going to take on the wrath of God without any kind of buffer between him and that wrath he's going to drink the cup of God's wrath dry on our behalf and he's going to do it without any kind of anesthetic but that tradition of giving anesthetics to people who are being crucified is a result of Proverbs 31 6 and 7 which Tom's going to read for us because I can see he has it there it says give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Give strong drink to those that are perishing. And so that became the tradition of trying to give a drink mixed with myrrh to people who were about to perish. Verse 23 says, And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, and he would not take it. And they crucified him. That's all Mark says about that. The reason that Mark can just say, and they crucified him, and assume that everybody would know what he was talking about is because crucifixion was so common at that point. It would be like me saying, I stopped at the light. Everybody here who drives knows what it means to stop at a light. It's just a very, very common thing. Crucifixion was so common among the Romans at this point and in Jerusalem that Mark could just simply say and he was crucified and that means that the nailing of his hands onto the cross beam the lifting up of the cross beam onto some kind of notch that it would sit on the fact that his feet were then nailed to the bottom of the upright beam all of that was just assumed in the phrase and then he was crucified. Everybody knew what that meant. And so they crucified him. And they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each of them should take. Very, very common. We saw it a couple of weeks ago that this is what the Roman soldiers would do. It was almost like a tip. It was part of their job that when they crucified somebody, they would divide up whatever belongings he had left or had on him at the time because they would strip him down to nothing but a loincloth, essentially. And so they divided up his garments among them. Verse 25 says, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. Now, if you look at Mark's rendering of that and John's rendering of that, you'll see there's a difference between third hour and sixth hour. That's because Mark is writing in Jewish time reckoning, and John is writing more in Greek time reckoning or Roman time reckoning. The difference being the Jews assume that a day starts at sundown of the previous day. So 6 o'clock at night, tonight will be the beginning of what we would call Monday. And then 6 o'clock in the morning becomes the first hour of the daytime hours. There's nighttime hours, there are daytime hours. And so when he tells us that it's about the third hour of the day when he's crucified, that means it's 9 in the morning, which means that the entire court case that has already happened him going through the kangaroo court before the Sanhedrin all of that had to have happened 
early enough that he could have already walked through Jerusalem and been crucified outside the gate by 9 o'clock. And that's because he was picked up in the garden in the middle of the night. All of this is very, very illegal. He was picked up in the garden in the night because the night before, which was the beginning of the day of Passover, he had had the Last Supper with his disciples. That's why his disciples kept falling asleep. They just had a dinner. They had just drunk wine. He keeps saying, can't you stay awake with me? They keep falling asleep because it's nighttime. It's the night when their bodies are typically ready to sleep. He has stayed awake through the night, in the middle of the night. He's been captured. He's been hauled off to see Pilate and hauled off to see Herod. All of that had to happen before 9 in the morning. Because by 9 in the morning, he's on the cross. He's being crucified. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read... The king of the Jews. I think two weeks ago we looked at that out of John's account where the Jews were upset with Pilate because Pilate wrote that in three different languages so that everybody could read it. It's in Latin, it's in Greek, it's in Hebrew. Everybody knows this is king of the Jews and the Jews come to him and say, don't write that. Write he said he was the king of the Jews. Now that's a charge that'll stick because that would be a form of blasphemy. But don't write that he is the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, I've written what I've written. So the inscription above him is the king of the Jews. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right side, one on his left side. And that is actually predicted in Isaiah 53. There are many, many things that we're going to read this morning and that we have read the last couple of weeks that are all predicted in Isaiah 52 and 53, which is really, really remarkable. So remarkable, in fact, that it's worth reading this morning. So keep your finger right there because the scripture is fulfilled, says Mark in verse 28. The scripture was fulfilled that said... He was numbered with the transgressors. That scripture that he's quoting is Isaiah 53. So turn back to Isaiah. Keep your finger right there in Mark. Isaiah 53 is a passage that you should know well. And actually, I wouldn't have stuck the 53 right there. I would have put it about... Isaiah 52, verse 13. That's really the beginning of the thought. And so someday when I publish my gemmerized version of the Bible, (laughs) chapter 53 of Isaiah will begin at 52, 13. Everybody there? Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at him, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man. The King James says his visage was marred. What it means is his outward body that people would look on was going to be marred, broken, more than any man. Even though no bone of him was going to be broken so that he was the perfect fulfillment of the Passover lambs that could not have a bone of them broken. Nevertheless, his outer person was so beaten 
His skin was so flayed off his back. His brow was so bloody and pierced with thorns. He was beaten in the face so many times and they ripped out his beard while Roman centurions punched him in the face and said, prophesy, who's hitting you? His body, his outward visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And thus he will sprinkle many nations. That's an astounding phrase on Isaiah's part. Isaiah says that through this one, the righteous servant of God, who is going to astonish many people when they look at him, they're going to look on him and see that his appearance is so beat up and so marred more than any other man. But by doing that, he's going to sprinkle many nations. Now, that goes all the way back to the Ark of the Covenant, back to the temple, the tabernacle in the wilderness. All of the furniture that was inside the tabernacle had to be sprinkled with blood. And then when the covenant was formed among the people, Moses had to sprinkle the people with blood because that was the formation of the covenant between God and his people. It was reckoned by and verified by blood of a sacrifice. And so by using that language that he was going to sprinkle many nations, Isaiah was predicting that by his destruction of his body, many people were going to be brought into covenant through sacrificial blood. And thus he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told to them, to the many nations, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. In other words, the Gentile nations who haven't grown up with the Old Testament, the people who haven't grown up with all the types and shadows, the people who don't have the law of God, the people who can't point back to Abraham as their source, those people are going to hear and understand something that nobody had ever told them before, something that they hadn't heard before. That's what they're going to understand as a result of being sprinkled, the many nations, because of the sacrificial blood of the sacrifice, who is going to be more marred, more beaten than any man is ever going to be. And yet God would say, behold, my servant's going to prosper. So he's going to gain something through all this. He's going to go through that kind of torture and in so doing, establish the new covenant, and he's going to prosper in bringing people and nations to himself. But the process that's going to be used is the beating, sacrifice, and crucifixion of Christ. You would never have come up with that. I mean, that's astounding sovereignty. But that's just sort of the prologue to chapter 53. Now the question comes up, And who has believed our message? That message is going out to the world. The message of Christ and his sacrifice and the establishment of the new covenant. Salvation by grace through faith. That's going out now to the world. You can be saved through the finished sacrifice of Christ. But who is going to believe that? And to whom is the arm or the power or the authority of God To whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? Not just shown, not just demonstrated, but it has to be revealed. I grew up hearing about Jesus. 
I mean, I grew up in a Lutheran household. I grew up with Christmas and all its trappings. I grew up knowing about Easter. I grew up knowing the stories of the Bible that I would learn in Sunday school. But I didn't get it. I didn't understand it, really. And then God revealed it to me. What's the point? You can grow up in a Christian culture. You can grow up in a Christian household. You can grow up with Christian parents and grandparents. You can be surrounded by Christians. And people can tell you things about God and they can show you the Bible and you're not going to understand it. You're not going to comprehend it. And importantly, you're not going to believe it until the arm, the power, the authority of God is revealed to you. Once God reveals it to you, well then, end game. There's no going back. Once it's revealed to you, you belong to him. That's who's believed it. Verse 2 says, for he, that's talking about Christ, grew up before him, that's Yahweh, that's God, like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we might look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In fact, says verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him, the very son of God walking around on the planet. And people didn't recognize him. They didn't see him. He's a man of sorrow. He ends up despised. And they don't esteem him as who he actually is. That all happened. That's why they're hanging him on a cross at this moment. They're putting him on the cross because they don't reckon or esteem him to be anybody important. If he had had any stately form or majesty or authority, they'd be afraid to put him on a cross. But they're not afraid of him at all because they do not esteem him. So he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Look at verse 4. Remember what we looked at last week? All the things that Christ actually accomplished on the cross? Well, that's to fulfill this. Surely our griefs, our trespasses, our guilt, he himself bore. That's substitutionary atonement. That's the imputation of our sin onto Christ. There are people who argue about the theology of imputation, and they say, where do you get that idea? Well, it starts right there. It starts with the fact that that the Jews for a long time had known that they could lay their hands on a goat and then a, a scapegoat, and then they could kill an animal and the other one would run away. They recognized that that was a way of transferring their guilt, their sin onto an animal, and then the animal would die in their place. But now here Isaiah is saying that a person is going to do that, that the very Son of God is going to do that, that our guilt, our sin is going to be imputed to him And he's going to bear the punishment for our sin. And surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he has carried. And we ourselves esteemed him. Here comes the esteem part. As stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. Okay, now when he wrote that, when Isaiah wrote that, crucifixion didn't exist yet. 
It's not until the time of the Persians that they're going to start crucifying people. And then the Romans are going to come along and say that the Persians weren't making it bad enough. So they're going to perfect the art of crucifixion to make it more torturous. But the Persians aren't on the scene to start piercing people and start nailing them to wood yet. And still Isaiah writes that he is going to be pierced through for his transgressions, for his guilt. No, he's going to be pierced through for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his stripes, by his scourging, we are healed. Now may I add real quickly, that doesn't mean physical healing. That means the healing of the nations. That means the healing of the relationship. If it were meant to say, by his stripes, our every sickness just automatically gets healed, then let's go home. The Bible's not true because that doesn't happen. There are plenty of sicknesses I'm sure we've all had that we'd like to be able to say, well, Jesus should have paid for this. I should be well by now. And unfortunately, that's the way that too many people read this. But there is so much mention in the Old Testament of bruising and healing and that it's God who brings the trouble and God who brings the healing. What he's saying here is that God is at enmity with the nations, starting with Israel, and he is going to heal his relationship with Israel and with the nations through the sacrifice of Christ, through the chastening that fell onto Christ. And so through his scourging, we are healed. So what did we do in all that? What's our part in all that? Because so far it's all been God did, Christ did. This is all going to happen. He's going to be bruised. God's going to be pleased. Well, then what is our part in all that? Well, that's verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have wandered off, gone astray. Can I get a witness? Amen. All of us. Don't know any better than to walk away, wander off, fall in ditches. That's all we know how to do. So you can see why it was absolutely necessary that he laid all our sin, all of our transgressions on Christ. Because the only way that we could pay that debt is hell forever. And so to keep us from the wrath of God... God poured out the wrath that belongs to us onto his son as a substitute. And by crushing him, by piercing him, then the chastening for our well-being fell on him. And Isaiah is saying all of this predictively. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Boy, there's human ego right there. All of us turn to our own way. I want to do my thing. I will not have this man to rule over me. I don't have to do that Christian thing. Why would you think I should conform my life to bring it into conformity with something some guy wrote a couple thousand years ago? I'll do my own thing. I'll decide for myself. Self-made man. Boom, 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 boom. Nike, just do it. All we like sheep have turned astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But 
Here's the really good news. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's such good news. How can you just sit there and stare at me? That is such good news. That is just such good news that we naturally turn astray. We naturally wander off. We want our own way. We are sick to death in our iniquity, in our sin, in our rebellion, in our utter depravity. That's us. And so God did for us the very thing that we simply could not do for ourselves. And he placed on Christ the iniquity of us all. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused our iniquity to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom that stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. That's the thing that Mark says is being satisfied. His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet... He was with a rich man in his death because he's going to end up in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who is, in fact, a rich man. How does Isaiah know this stuff so far in advance? Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. There were no lies in his mouth. The same way that he said to his disciples, I'm going to go prepare a place for you in my father's house. There are many dwelling places. And then he said, if it were not so, I would have told you. Because he doesn't know how to not tell the truth. If it were not so, I'd have told you there's no deceit in his mouth. Everything he says is trustworthy. After all, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Verse 10, but the Lord, Yahweh, was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. Notice that phrase, if he would render himself. The last couple of weeks, I've been saying that Christ accomplished his death. His life was not taken from him. He even said so. He said, no man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay my life down, and I have the power to take it up again. And I have this command from my father. So he was a willing sacrifice. Why? Why was he willing to suffer the ignominy of death on a cross after being beaten, after being publicly shamed, after being spit on, why would he be willing to go hang on a tree after being nailed to a chunk of wood on your behalf, though he didn't deserve it? Why would he be willing to do that? There's only one answer that makes any sense. That's how much he loved you. That's how much he was willing to give for you. Is it worth asking the question, what are you willing to give for him? I'll throw that out there and just let you cogitate on it. 
He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And then, right about the time you go, okay, I get it. Okay, God's going to do all that to him, and he's going to die. Okay, he's, he's a dead man, and he's dying for somebody else. Okay, I get that. All of a sudden, the language of Isaiah changes to... And he, God, will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days. What? You just said he's dead. And yet it says God's going to prolong his days and see his offspring. And the good pleasure of the Lord is going to prosper in his hands. That's where it all began. Behold, my servant will prosper. So he is going to be prosperous in his death, in the burial, in the resurrection. Now, when Isaiah wrote this, it was a huge conundrum for the uh, Jewish leaders and for the rabbis of the day because they just couldn't figure out how in the world Isaiah could be talking about somebody who died and yet lived. And so for a while, they postulated that there had to be two messiahs to come. Based on what Isaiah had said, they were trying to harmonize Isaiah, so they decided that there had to be one Messiah who was going to come and die, and then there was going to be one who was going to come and reign, because they knew that Messiah was going to be the king of Israel, but how does the king of Israel, the very sign that hung over his head, how does the king of Israel come and then die? That's not what he does. He comes and he establishes the kingdom. And yet Isaiah says that he's going to prosper and he's going to prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord is going to prosper in his hands. Well, then he can't be talking about the same guy. He has to be talking about two different people. But no, he was talking about one, the the thing that the Jewish rabbis didn't get as they were reading Isaiah initially before they saw Christ come to the planet. They didn't understand the resurrection part. They didn't realize that one person was actually going to accomplish all of this. And the very fact that Mark takes the time to point it out and say, look, here's a part of Isaiah 53 being satisfied right now, being fulfilled right now, I think is Mark's way of saying, you know, that's all being fulfilled. That's all being satisfied. Go back and read what Isaiah wrote about him. This had to happen. He had to hang on a tree because he's getting up again. He's going to rise again. He's going to resurrect again. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to bring the kingdom. All of it's true. Because Mark had the good fortune of hindsight. He wrote his gospel after it all happened. As a result, says verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, God will see it and be satisfied. That's really good news again. Okay, let's talk about that satisfaction for just a moment. God is holy. Everybody agree? Yes. Yes. 
God is perfectly righteous. Everybody agree? Yes. Yeah, but God is also just. Yes. And his justice must be satisfied. And his righteousness demands that when someone sins, someone dies. And we're all reckoned sinners. So then what do we all deserve? Death. Death. Punishment, torture, the wrath of God, outer darkness, all that is what we deserve. And so God's righteousness, God's justice is going to be satisfied in one of two ways. Either he's going to give you what you deserve, or he's going to put your punishment on Christ. And Christ, being your substitute, is going to fully satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf. Are you getting some sense now of why this Christian thing is so important? There's just a whole lot more to it than just wearing a groovy t-shirt. Or getting to go to hipster church concerts. There's so much more to Christianity. It is about the everlasting righteousness, holiness, and justice of God being satisfied. That's what Christ is all about. And believe me when I tell you, and I'm saying this on the authority of scripture, believe me, if you don't believe in Christ, he's still going to get satisfaction because God always gets satisfaction because he's sovereign and his justice demands it and he's going to be satisfied either in his son and you're in his son and his son is in you and therefore he's satisfied with you or he's going to be satisfied in casting you into outer darkness either way justice gets satisfied understand that you better cling to this Christ thing You better run to this Jesus thing for all your worth because your entire eternity depends on it. But as a result of the anguish of Christ's soul, God will be satisfied. He will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, Christ, will justify the many. And he will bear their iniquities. Again, that's a two-edged sword. He's going to justify you, meaning that you are now righteousified. You're now justified. You're now just and righteous before God. But he's also going to pay your sin debt. So by paying your sin debt, you're not just left neutral. No righteousness, no sin. Your righteousness has to be the positive righteousness of Christ to stand before God. And so he's going to justify you and impute his righteousness to you. So your sin is imputed to Christ. Christ dies for you and Christ's righteousness is placed on you so that you can go and be in the presence of the God, the Father, who he went before to prepare a dwelling place for you. And that's all Him doing it, all him satisfying his own righteousness and justice in his son so that you don't have to. Therefore, verse 12 says, therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He deserves it. He's the only one who deserves that. 
I'm here to tell you right now, Micah deserves zero worship. Can I get a witness, April? That was quick. Man, you were right there. There's no human being on the planet who deserves worship. When Paul was on the Isle of Patmos and started healing people, people thought he was a god and tried to treat him like one. He said, oh, no, don't do that. In fact, even angels are said in the Bible to say, I'm a fellow servant like you. Worship God. We're not to worship every spiritual thing that we don't understand. We're supposed to test the spirits because not every spirit is from God. Only God himself deserves worship and requires worship and expects worship. And God himself has said that he's going to give his son a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God the Father's plan to lift up his son, that his son is going to have preeminence over everyone and everything, and therefore I will, God will allot him a portion with the great which he deserves because by his death and by his sprinkling, he is going to satisfy God, he's going to justify men, and he's going to bring us into God's presence. (laughs) Oh, man, that just keeps getting gooderer and gooderer. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty, the treasure, with the strong because he poured out himself to death and because He was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus. Back to Mark 15. We are at Mark 15, 27. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right side and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. Even at the moment of his death, they're still mocking him and wagging their heads And even mocking the fact that he doesn't get off the cross. Look at verse 31. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. That's true. What would happen if Jesus saved himself? I mean, he could have asked his father. He could have had legions of angels. He could have gotten down from that cross any time he wanted. The men who started beating him or plucking out his beard, he could have burned them all to ashes instantly if he wanted to. And yet he was willing to endure all of this for your sake and did not save himself because he was saving others. And here they're mocking him for that very thing and saying, he saved others, can't save himself. And oddly, that was true. If he had saved himself, there's no salvation for George. 
There's no salvation for Steve. There's no hope for any of us if Jesus saves himself. But he turned himself over to go through this torturous death in order to save others like us. Verse 32. They continue, let this Christ, this Messiah, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. They think if he miraculously comes down from the cross, that that's going to convince them. Then they're going to believe that he actually is the Messiah. But because they're the leaders in Jerusalem, we've already been told that these were the scribes, the priests that are saying this. They don't even understand what they're reading in the Old Testament. They don't understand any of the predictive things about Jesus. They don't understand what we just read out of Isaiah. They don't understand that he's dying on the cross because he has to. He's doing it substitutionarily so that other people will be saved. And they say, come down from that cross. Don't do the very thing that was predicted about you. Come down from the cross and then we'll believe in you. That goes all the way back to who's believed our report. The only people who are ever going to believe this are the people who God reveals it to. And even if Christ had come down from that cross, they weren't going to believe. And the one thing they needed to believe most, which is that he was Savior, they were never going to believe. He had to stay on the cross. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. That means that both of the thieves were casting insults at Jesus. And then, instantaneously, rather miraculously, what we read two weeks ago was that one of those two thieves decides to tell the other one, don't you fear God? He said, we're dying for our own sins. This man's done nothing. And then he looks to Jesus and says, when you come into your kingdom... Remember me. And Jesus says, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. But here Mark tells us that both of the benefactors were railing against him. Which means that man was converted on the cross. Which means, by the way, there's always hope. There's always hope. As long as a man is breathing... Up until his very last heartbeat, there is always hope. And an absolutely sovereign God can reveal himself to anybody he wants at any point he wants. He can wake you up when you're three years old, or he can bring you to faith when you're laying on your deathbed. He can do whatever he wants, and if you belong to him, he's going to get you. So since there is always hope, and since we have that example of the thief on the cross, I say, keep praying for your lost loved ones. Because you just never know what God might do. Now, by the way, this thief on the cross, the very fact that he was on a cross means that he could not follow any of the common strictures of modern religion. You couldn't tell that guy to do anything. 
Oh, oh, you believe in me now? Oh, oh you want me to remember you and your kid? Go get baptized. He can't. He's on a cross. Hurry. In your last few seconds, do some good works. He, he can't. What's he going to do? Join a church. He can't. He's crucified. He's dead in a few minutes. None of the things that would be required of him by most modern religion could possibly apply to him. He knew one thing. What did he know? Look to Christ. Christ. He knew who to look to. And that look to Christ was enough for Christ to say, today you'll be with me in paradise. So I tell people all the time, look to Christ. Don't look to your tradition. Don't look to church. Don't look to trying to be good enough. Don't try to improve yourself. Don't clean yourself up. Just come to Christ. Run to Christ. He's the one who's able to say, you don't have to get all your theological ducks in a row. Just come to Christ. All you have to know is who to look to. He'll give you the rest. He'll teach you the rest. He's got eternity to get the rest right. But come to Christ. And so the thief on the cross knew enough to know who to look to. What Mark tells us is that the two benefactors on either side were railing against him. Those that were crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. And when the sixth hour had come, okay, if the third hour is 9 o'clock, what is the sixth hour? Noon, 12 noon. At 12 noon, when the sun is at its peak, between 6 and 6, at 12 noon, there was darkness that fell over the earth. God waited till the sun got as high as it's going to get and then darkened it. And when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. What's the ninth hour? Three. Three. Three in the afternoon. For three hours, there was darkness. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And when some of the bystanders heard it, They began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. That's actually an old Hebrew tradition that people, when they were perishing, would call for Elijah. And so when they heard him crying out, they just followed the tradition and said, Well, he's he's calling out for Elijah. He must be ready to die. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. We know from John's account it was because he had said, I thirst. But they were running and getting the wine, it says here. Which, by the way, this sour wine was oftentimes a mixture of wine and water and sometimes eggs to give them a little bit of refreshment in their mouth, but also to give them a little bit more strength so that they could live just a little bit longer, which is actually what these people were doing. Sometimes we think of them giving him a drink as a positive thing, like they were being sympathetic. They weren't. They were trying to keep him going a little longer because they wanted to see whether Elijah would come or not. That's what the next verse says. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come down and take him. 
Because that would have validated him. That would have said, okay, maybe he's not that bad a criminal if Elijah comes for him. And he's calling for Elijah. So let's give him something to drink and see if we can't keep him alive a little longer in order to see whether Elijah shows up or not. This is still all part of the mockery. All right. Oh, time is rushing away with me. Okay, let me throw out one quick theological concept so that I can essentially bury it and then we'll move on. There is a theological premise out there in the larger confessing evangelical world that says that the kingdom to come is now. I won't get into the whole overarching theology of it, but basically they say the kingdom that Christ proffered exists now. They say that Jesus at the Last Supper said to his disciples that he would not drink from the fruit of the vine again until he drank it new with them in the kingdom. And then they see that they gave him sour wine on the cross. You're shaking your head already. And they say that was Jesus taking the wine for the inauguration of the kingdom. Of course, that ignores the fact that he said he was going to drink it new with them, and none of them were actually on the cross. But that is the way that they get around the idea of kingdom to come, kingdom future, kingdom for Israel. They say that the kingdom is now, and the church is properly now the end of God's economy, and the know-all and end-all of what God is doing, as demonstrated by the fact that Jesus drank some wine on the cross, and so therefore he kept his word that he was only going to drink wine when the kingdom came, and so now the kingdom's here because he drank wine. You can see that that makes no sense for a couple of reasons. Not only because, as I just mentioned, the disciples weren't with him, but also because they were forcing the wine on him in order to keep him going, in order to mock him. This was not the inauguration of the kingdom of God. Is that obvious enough? Okay, good. I I walked through that one quickly. Some bystanders heard it. They began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come down and take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry. And he breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Mark takes the time to tell us from the top to the bottom because you're talking about a curtain that is much taller than any human being. You couldn't get a hold of it from the top and tear it. And it's about four inches thick. It's a really thick curtain that was placed between the Holy of Holies and the outer court. And there was a curtain, and only once a year was one man, the high priest, allowed to go behind that curtain. Now, of course, ever since the time of Jeremiah, there was no Ark of the Covenant in there. And yet the priests kept going in there and kept going through the rigmarole that they were supposed to go through back there, even though they couldn't pour blood on the Ark of the Covenant to bring about the Day of Atonement, which was the whole point of going behind the curtain. So the religious practice itself at that point was essentially empty. And then the curtain is torn open. Now, there are differing opinions on why the curtain was torn open. Being torn open from the top to the bottom means no man could have done it. God tore it open. I've read commentaries that say 
The curtain was torn to let God out because God had always been there behind the curtain where the Ark of the Covenant was and the priest had to go into where God was and the people had to stay outside but God was on the inside and then the curtain tore and God came out to all people and is now inhabiting the temple of his people instead of being in the Holy of Holies. That's, I guess, somewhat attractive But I don't think that's the right reason for it being torn open. I think the reason the curtain was torn open was to let us in. Because now we don't need a priest. Now we don't need a high priest. We have Jesus as our high priest, as our intercessor. And it also demonstrates, once that curtain's torn open, that there is no Ark of the Covenant in there. That means the religion that's been going on inside there isn't accomplishing anything. But the ark of the body of Christ that was pouring out his blood for the sprinkling of many nations was accomplishing the very thing that the empty room with the torn curtain could never accomplish. I think that's why God tore the curtain open. Now, you may have a different opinion. The Bible doesn't tell us why it happened. We just know it did. Tradition tells us, history tells us, that the Jews immediately got busy repairing the curtain. They didn't want to give up their authority or their money or their ability to tell people what to do. They wanted their religion to stay intact, but their religion was officially over when Christ came. So let's finish up here because I know you're hungry. I've seen Bertrill moving back there. I know the food's ready, so... The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Look at verse 39. And when the centurion that was standing beside him there, who was standing right in front of him, when he saw the way that Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Another instantaneous revelation. God revealed himself to this man And you'll notice that he didn't come to this conclusion when the earthquakes hit. And he didn't come to that conclusion with the three hours of darkness. It didn't matter what signs he saw. He still didn't come to that conclusion. But when Jesus breathed his last, this man watching the way Jesus died comes to the conclusion, surely that was the Son of God. I believe that that's God one more time revealing himself because Isaiah said, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So the centurion that was standing right in front of him saw the way that he breathed his last and said, truly, this man was the son of God. And there were also some women looking on from the distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him, and they used to minister to him, taking care of his daily needs. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. The reason that Mark adds that little detail and why it's so important is later on when we talk about some of the Excuses that people have given through the years for why they don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, one of those excuses is going to be, well, the women went to the wrong tomb. But Mark is pointing out that they were right there at the cross. 
they saw him on the cross, and then he's going to mention them again when he's laid in the tomb. They're also there. They know where everything is taking place. They know where the body is laid. They are eyewitnesses to the death and the burial and ultimately the resurrection of Christ. And so Mark is adding detail here that is really, really important. And next week we will pick up at verse 42. When evening had come, because it was the day of the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up his courage and he asked Pilate for the body. Next week we'll look at the burial of Jesus And then we get to the resurrection. And then we get to how important the resurrection is to all Christian theology. And then we'll even get to the longer and shorter ending of Mark. So even though it looks like there's only one more chapter in the book of Mark, there's a lot of good stuff to talk about. All right? All right. right. Are you hungry? Yes. Oh, okay, good. Because I've, I've seen some of the food that's traveling through there. If anybody tries to leave, the rest of you tackle them. Because we have so much food back there. So you need to stay here and eat. Are there any questions about what you've heard this morning? Do you get it? Do you get some of the importance of what Christ did and the importance of this Christian thing? Yes. Okay, good. Yes, George. This is a little off the subject, but... Do those evangelicals not believe in an afterlife and a heaven, or by whatever name you might want to call it, if they believe this is the kingdom now, what do they believe about after death? You're going to have to ask somebody who's really committed to that position because I'm of the mind that if this is the kingdom now, we need to be singing, is that all there is? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they would say this is just kind of the pinnacle of God's career on earth, as it were. And then Christ is going to come back, and we just all go to the eternal state. That's just it. There's no time in between, they say, for a kingdom of Israel. And so since the language of the Bible says so much about kingdom, including what we just read, Joseph of Arimathea, who was looking forward to the kingdom, the Bible says so much about kingdom, they've got to put the kingdom somewhere And since they can't see that it's Israel's kingdom, they end up having to say it's the church's kingdom. It's the kingdom now. And if this is the kingdom now, there's a couple different flavors of it. They either say it's going to get progressively worse and then Christ comes back. Or they say it's going to get progressively better when Christ comes back, we give him the kingdom after we have Christianized the planet. But either way, this is a really disappointing kingdom. And it certainly doesn't satisfy what the Bible says about the kingdom. I don't see holiness to the Lord written on the pots and pans and bridles of the horses yet. This doesn't look like a particularly holy place going on right now. So, Anything else? Yes, sir. I have a question. Uh, yeah. In Isaiah 53, I think it was verse 10, when it says uh, he will see his offspring... Is that like a ref- like you'll see the fruits of his labor almost? Like- kind of, yeah. Offspring is the English translation of the Hebrew word, which is a little more difficult to render. But it means those that flow from him. Okay. So Christians, believers. Yeah, okay. those that belong to him. Steve, did you have your hand up a minute ago? No, I was trying to uh, 
control. Oh, I see. And of course, you're talking about Sandy. Okay. <laughs> Sandy, did you have your hand up? Yeah, I did. And then darkness came for three hours. I've always believed that at that time is when God placed the sin of mankind on Christ. And God couldn't look upon sin. And so in my mind, I'm thinking that's when he forsook him and left that perfect lamb, lamb up there on the cross. Mm -hmm. Do you have any input on that? That is actually a fairly common understanding of it. And I don't really have a, a problem with it. Uh, we're trying to read meaning into something the Bible doesn't tell us. All we know is that Jesus said that and that it was dark. But I agree with the premise that God being too holy to look upon sin, we know that. And that when his son became sin for us, that that may have been when he turned his back, which is essentially what the Greek word means in the forsaken part, that God turned away from him. And if he had to turn away from him while he became sin, I, I'm kind of okay with that. It's just that I can't state it as a, an absolute, like it's a theological thing that I've drawn right from the Bible, because it's not. It's, a, it's an explanation of what facts we have in front of us. So I'm okay with that, though. And while you were talking, for some reason, I realized I was doing this. Like those two inches made you more, <laughs> like I could hear you better, like just that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, I have to tell you that uh, I've heard from Janine, of course, a couple of times since she got over to Australia, and, and she was very, very moved and touched that the Wednesday night crowd said goodbye to her. That, that meant a lot to her. So, number one, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Now say goodbye to Janine. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.